Will you now join me as we go before the Lord with a pastoral prayer, as we pray for the needs of the kingdom as well as the needs of our own church. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could gather before your throne of grace through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our elder brother who made this access possible here today. We come, O oh Lord, praying for our own country and government. Uh, we think of election season as primaries will be kicking off here shortly. But we also think, O oh Lord, of our own Congress. We think of the House of Representatives as we prayed for the Senate last week. We pray for the House this week. We pray for Speaker Johnson as he has assumed the gavel. We pray, O oh Lord, that the law written upon his heart would be made evident by the way in which he rules over us and by the way in which he leads the House. We pray, O oh Lord, that the work of the House would bring honor to you by their declarations and decisions. We pray, O oh Lord, that the law that has been written on every one of our hearts would come to bear in the fruit of having legislature passed that helps the prosperity of the American people, that helps the morality of our country. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be gracious to Speaker Johnson in this regard, but all of those in the House who represent us there. We also pray, O oh Lord, for the work and the mission of the church. We think, O oh Lord, of the seminaries within the PCA. We think of Covenant Seminary, which is right across the river, Reform Seminary. Think of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and, and the others, O oh Lord. We pray, O oh Lord, that as they raise up men to be gospel preachers, that you would continue, O oh Lord, to raise up faculty that is faithful to your scriptures as we understand them according to our confession. We pray, O oh Lord, for a revival in all of these seminaries to further hasten themselves to their endeavor. We pray, O oh Lord, for Jonathan Master, for Ligon Duncan. We pray, O oh Lord, for Tom Gibbs as they are the heads of these various institutions. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be gracious to them and their endeavors to lead their seminaries forward even in the midst of of a society and culture that is often hostile to the nature of their existence. Give these men boldness and provide them, O oh Lord, the courage necessary to remain solid in their proclamation of the truth. May they stand firm, O oh Lord, and in their standing firm, raise up ministers of the gospel to that very end. To continue, O oh Lord, the flourishing and prosperity of not only our denomination, but the many denominations that serve um, from those institutions. We pray also, O oh Lord, for the lost. We think of those who are lost within our own state. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we gather in this season where we are drawn perhaps to various gospel motifs, often, O oh Lord, we can overlook them. We can become... In, grossed and in love with our own material desires and we can miss the purpose of thinking through the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are many, O oh Lord, who are lost within our own state to just that end. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be merciful to us, that you'd use the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Illinois to bring about revival in our land, to see true transformation within the society of our state. O oh Lord, Bring revival that those who are in Illinois would know the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Use our church to that end. But every church, O oh Lord, that maintains faith 
well according to the tenets of Christianity. We pray, O Lord, for that grace upon us, to our fellow countrymen. We also pray, O Lord, for our own congregation. We pray that in this season, you would grant us a growth in compassion and mercy. May we be a people, O Lord, that exemplify these attributes of your divinity in our own lives, as well as to those who we know. O Lord, grant us compassion. When we are feeling cold, O Lord, grant us warmth with fellow believers, but also unbelievers. Instill within each of our hearts a merciful heart, providing mercy to the poor and lost. O Lord, may we be a congregation that not only grows in grace and truth, but also compassion and mercy. O Lord, bring us help as well. We pray, O Lord, as this season will bring about many memories, some good and some sad, we pray that you would remind us of your great joy and gladness. O Lord, we will, of course, miss those who have passed before us. But remind us even today that at the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who profess him, this departure is not long. And Lord, in that great mercy, extend it to all of us as we have joy this season, but also sorrow. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> we'll be picking up in Luke chapter 7 in verse 18, and what we get is an update from that age-old prophet, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist. Perhaps this update is a little peculiar as you read it. You see some doubt from this Baptist, from this great prophet, but you also see the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ even in the midst of John's doubt. The main question that we see in this passage is, are you the one who is to come, or are we to look for another? You might have a stern rebuke for John and his doubt for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we see a lighter hand, a lighter touch from our Messiah as he deals with this brother in the faith. Stand in reverence then as we hear from Luke chapter 7. We'll be picking up in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will, appear your, uh, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among these born of a woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. And the Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. We haven't heard from John the Baptist in a while. It's been about three or so chapters back in Luke chapters 3 when we saw that Jesus had been passed the baton from John in order to start his ministry. John presently, as we get the, the update of where John is in this passage, he is about five miles away imprisoned awaiting death. And what we see here is something we saw a few weeks ago with the centurion that's even referenced in this passage. Like the centurion's delegation, John the Baptist, because he is unable to meet with Jesus, sends his own delegation. And that delegation is tasked with a simple task. They must go and discern whether Jesus is the one whom was, that was supposed to be sent or were they to look for another perhaps a peculiar circumstance this is after all john the baptist the one who was the forerunner who prepared the way for the lord and yet we see as we would see in most humanity the feebleness of humanity the prison has not been kind to john john expected liberation from his messiah and yet he seems to be rotting away alone in a prison the Messiah seemed to not meet all of John's expectations. And this leads perhaps to John's heart with just a flicker of doubt. Have you ever doubted something? My third parent growing up was video games. And I remember I had perhaps my mom, my dad, and Crash Bandicoot, all people I think fondly of within my own heart. My family bonded perhaps uniquely around video games. Most families go on vacations. Other families do events together like hiking, maybe playing board games. My family would buy the largest screen TV humanly possible to put the Atari connected to it. And we bonded. We bonded. I remember as a boy growing up, I would play Pac-Man with my grandmother, Legend of Zelda with my mom, and then with my grandfather, Super Mario. 
But my grandfather was a peculiar type of man as it related to this family habit. My grandfather was one that often doubted my skill and ability. And it was always so. After I would come and I would defeat the last boss in the latest Legend of Zelda game, I would say, Grandpa, you should be proud. I have completed the Legend of Zelda. And my grandfather would look at me with complete doubt in his eyes. He would say, you've completed it? I am sure you've not completed it. My grandfather was the completionist of my household. And unless you collected every rupee, every heart canister, every little collectible in that entire game, you have not completed it. After the credits rolled, that was just the beginning for this man. And he would go on spending 70, 80 hours collecting every little piece of that game until it was completed. He was a doubtful man, and he was right to be doubtful. Because my understanding of completion was just seeing the credits roll. And that's when the game had just began for him. He didn't play a lot of games in his life, as you'd expect, but he completed every single one of them. But he was a doubter. In a similar way then, we have two very different conceptions of who the Messiah is. Perhaps in my own family, we have two different, very different conceptions of what completion is. But in this passage, we see two conceptions of what the Messiah is. John the Baptist begins to wonder, the Messiah that I thought would come would be much different than the Jesus that I have here today. Perhaps you can empathize with John in this regard. You might look at the society and the culture around you and might wonder to yourself, is this truly the Messiah that has come? Perhaps the Savior looks a little different than the one that you imagined when you first accepted the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you were like John. You expected a warrior Christ that would come and redeem the land that was given to him taking up arms in order to have his way. Maybe you have a Jesus that you expected that would be one who would universally save everyone, and yet so many lack faith in him. Maybe you desire a politically correct Jesus, and you get all of these inflammatory statements throughout all of the New Testament. Well, you'll get your answer today on who this Messiah is as we answer John's question. Who is Jesus Christ? There are three ideas of who Jesus Christ is in, in this passage. The first thing we see is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, and we see this in verse 18 through 21. And the disciples of John reported these things to him, and John, calling two disciples, sent them to him, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What is John talking about in this passage? He is grinding back to that question that we have already discussed to almost ad nauseum of who is this Messiah that would come? That's what John's question is. Is this the Messiah, or are we to look for another? I don't want you, perhaps while we think through this idea to over-psychologicalize who John was, trying to get into his mind, where were the issues? What were the motivation behind these questions? We don't get that in the gospel, but we do have this question, perhaps, of mild doubt. 
Perhaps John in this passage is thinking of some of the Old Testament literature of true historical, physical redemption of Israel. You think of Malachi 3.2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. That's the Messiah John has in his mind as he sends this delegation out in order to meet Jesus. The average Jew would have thought that Jesus in this gospel would be a revolutionary. Think of the Maccabean rebellion that would happen just a generation before. Someone who would revolt against the Roman authoritative government over them. That is not the Messiah they got. At least not in the first coming. You can empathize then with John. John expects Jesus to overthrow Rome. And now he sits under Roman authority waiting death. Rotting in a bleak prison. His head would be severed from his body not much long later. He expected a revolution. He expected to be redeemed. He expected physical freedom. And it seems he has gotten the opposite. Instead, even more offensive than that, he hears these reports that we had just heard the past two weeks. Not only has Jesus not come to physically save me from this pit, but he comes redeeming slaves that belong to a centurion, the enemies of God. He has come preaching the gospel to Tyre and Sidon, the people that we hate, who we should have authority over. He is doing the opposite of what I expected. I expected liberation and physical freedom, and yet he seems to be sympathizing with my oppressor. You can expect why John would ask such a question as he sits with his captors. But Jesus seems to remind later in this passage, perhaps not where we are now, of who the Messiah is in Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. John is being reminded throughout this whole passage of who the Messiah is at his advent, of his first coming. He is the one that will bring healing. He is the one that will allow the deaf to hear, allow the lame to be like deers. He is the one that will bring forth water into the desert wilderness. Perhaps something we could interpret as the dead and dying world outside of Israel. That is the Messiah to come. The Messiah and your expectations are too little. Jesus has not come merely to save this one little fragment of land in Palestine, but to redeem all of creation itself. The gospel is bigger than what John can understand. Yes, Jesus is a conqueror, but he conquers first in a way that we might not expect. He conquers Satan and sin. And then at his second advent, as we'll see perhaps at some point, maybe in our lives or the next, he will come as John expected in Malachi with a sword in hand ready to redeem all of creation. The expectations of John were off for who the Messiah was. And so Jesus perhaps shows them about the stories 
that Jesus is currently dealing with. Are the stories true, though? In Luke 7, 21, it says, In the hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. In order to re-up John's confidence and the disciples of John's confidence in the ministry and work of Jesus Christ, Jesus shows them. He gives them a picture into the ministry that he is performing. Perhaps it doesn't meet your expectations, but this is the work of the Messiah. It is to bring restoration piecemeal, piece by piece of the creation that he is over. The first priority here is not merely the nationhood of Israel, but rather the people therein. His first goal is to redeem and bring to life those who do not know God. And he does so through these miraculous signs, through healing diseases, through bringing about the end of evil spirits, of bestowing sight to those who did not have it, to sinners. comes to the poor and to the needy. Maybe you're like John this morning. Maybe your expectations for Jesus Christ somehow aren't fulfilled. I know we all feel it from time to time. Jesus isn't working how I expected him to work in this circumstance. Have you ever felt that way? Perhaps you've gone through suffering and difficulty. He seems slow to answer. And when he does answer, it's not how I expected him to answer. Why doesn't he deal more severely with my enemies? That's perhaps a question I often have. I want more freedom. Why hasn't he dealt with my enemies better? Well, Jesus is warning John and us not to be offended by how he works. Not to doubt him. Do not stumble over Jesus because he is not meeting your expectations. Or because you have spiritual doubts. Because you're disappointed with God. Remember what Jesus has come to do. We perhaps have our minds dwelling upon the Advent season of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded of what he has come to do, and that is to offer life to those who are dead in their sins. Jesus provides the example for John. I am here to give you life. It is a mercy-filled ministry, not one first primarily that unsheathes swords, but of one that offers the grace of the gospel. In response, you might be a doubter, I don't know. You might be a skeptic. You might be one who has low expectations that aren't fulfilled. But there are perhaps, as we are dealing with the gospel, many we know who are like this. And perhaps our solution for them, for those who are doubting, for those who have a lack of expectation fulfilled, is to engage in the polemical work, (laughs) to defend the truths of the gospel through what we can say. We can have the most perfect defense. Perhaps we have special pleading. Just please, don't doubt. Perhaps we decide to withdraw from the arena entirely. They'll never believe. They have doubts. Leave them to it. That's not what we have in Jesus here. Jesus knows what he is dealing with. He is dealing with an honest, sympathetic inquirer who is the one that was the forerunner for his ministry. And in response, he deals with them kindly and honestly. He shows him the actions of himself in order to provide him enough encouragement to persevere. That is the Jesus of the gospel, and that is the answer to doubt. 
is not a polemical argument that solves all those unanswerable questions. That's not the origin of doubt. Jesus offers us a sympathetic, merciful ministry that speaks loudest as he confirms truth by his action and word because he is the Messiah. The second thing I want you to see, though, is that Jesus is greater. So first we see in these first few verses that he is Messiah. In these next few, 22 to 28, we see that he is greater. And he answered them, Go and tell, in verse 22, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Throughout this passage, we'll see in, in verse 22 to 28 that Jesus is the greater John, and everyone who comes after John is greater than John. But this is a reminder that John is great, right? So don't misunderstand this passage in thinking that John is a hopeless doubter, that he is unredeemable, unsaved, and good riddance, his head was severed from his body. That is not what Luke or Jesus want you to get from this passage. Jesus reconfirms as he answers the doubts of John by reminding us of how great John was. Greater than Alexander the Great. Greater than Julius Caesar. Greater than Socrates. Greater than Napoleon. He was a great man. Second only in his life to Christ himself. None of them would be viewed as better than a locust-eating prophet who was in the wilderness. He was a great man. But notice in verse 28, what does the gospel say? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. No one is greater than, than John except those who are greater than John. Isn't that an interesting way, perhaps oxymoronic, for how Luke writes? No one is greater than John, but those who are greater than John. This is what Luke means, though, when he says that. Perhaps we can use an, uh, an analogy. I got this from Dale Ralph Davis, so don't give me any credibility. But he talks about women's suffrage movement that Susan B. Anthony worked towards in the United States. Uh, when she died in 1906, 14 years before the 19th Amendment was adopted, she would be viewed as the one who had championed the greatest advocate for women's rights in all of the United States. Though she herself had never enjoyed them. She was a great person for women's suffrage. And yet, in post-1920s Northeast Iowa, the wife of a farmer was greater than Susan B. Anthony. Why? Because she had the, the rights that Susan B. Anthony dreamed of. In the same way, that is what Luke is trying to focus our minds on here. Those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ are greater than John because they have fuller rights and understandings of the work of God than John he himself had. We have the gospel in fruition. One thing I like to quiz youth when I ask them questions about who is greater. I love to play the game, who is greater? David or you? Moses or you? Samuel or you? Melchizedek or you? you just insert every great prophet. The answer is you. And that, that's perhaps surprising. And not in the sense of perhaps you're the greatest king of Israel before Christ himself. Not in that sense. 
but that you have greater access to the truth of Christ as bound within the scriptures written for us to receive. We know who Christ is better, more fuller than these Old Testament saints. They longed to know the Messiah, but yet they did not know his name. And yet here we do. And therefore you are greater than John. But this isn't to minimize John. Jesus doesn't jump ugly with John. You see that in verse 24 and going on when he says, What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What Jesus is saying is John was no softy. This was a rugged blue-collar man that worked hard. He was like perhaps what you'd see a, a farmer or perhaps someone who would run a home with animals that need constant tending. He was like that man, a rugged man, not blown to and fro like a, wee, a reed. He is not one that is dressed in regal protection, but he is one that was in a wilderness. He stood and he stood firmly and he was a prophet a prophet of the Lord that's what Jesus confirms a great prophet one that would prepare the way for us to see Christ second thing we see is that Jesus is greater and you need to know that yourself that you have a great capacity to know the Lord Jesus Christ and a capacity greater than even John himself could know you have the scriptures written before you not a liability but an assurance of faith. When you doubt, go to the scriptures and mind them. When your expectations seem not to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, go to the scriptures and mind them. When your prayers seem unanswered or answered in ways that you do not like, go to the scriptures and mind them. For it is in the scriptures that we see Jesus is greater. And even in the midst of our doubt, we know that he protects his creature. Doubt is not the unforgivable sin. It is not. The Lord dealt graciously with John the Baptist, and he deals graciously with every believer here today. You may have doubts. In this Advent season, you may have doubts, but know that Jesus is greater. The last thing I want you to see, perhaps the least hopeful in some regards, is that Jesus is the divider. That's the last thing we see in this passage, and we see that in verses 29 through 35. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the law lawyers rejected him, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. We see in this passage that Jesus is a polarizing figure. On the one hand, we see a sympathetic inquiry from a disciple of Jesus, and on the other hand, we see those who wholeheartedly reject Jesus. We see those who are hearts are so hardened that they both reject John and Jesus. They say John was too crazy and Jesus is also too crazy. John is a bit odd, and Jesus is a bit odder. They reject both of them wholesale for the opposite reasons. You couldn't find the right candidate in their eyes. Jesus was a polarizing figure, and he remains so today. Everyone has an opinion on him. Either you love him or you hate him. Few were left in the middle. 
Perhaps we can think of our own modern presidential system with their candidates. You either love them or hate them. I could start naming a few. I don't want you to associate them with Jesus Christ. Please don't. But if I say Donald Trump, half of you jeer, half of you say I will support him in 2024. If I say Joe Biden, the same exact repulsion in half of you is transferred to the other half. If I say Hillary Clinton, maybe all of us coil. I don't know. No political judgments here. Vote your consciences in that regard. Jesus was just as divisive, perhaps more. He divided. We all have opinions on who Jesus is, and some of them are right, and some of them are wrong. But who does Jesus divide here? He divides those who know him from those who do not know him. He divides those who are in the kingdom of God, as he referenced in the last point, with those being greater than John, for those who reject him. It's somewhat black and white. Perhaps our congregation would enjoy that. There is a clear divide. Those who love the Lord and those who do not. One commentator concludes, no matter how God speaks to his people, unbelief is not satisfied. Contrary to what we often assume, unbelief is not thoughtful and rational, but twisted and perverse. Remember a few moments ago as I was talking about the messianic nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also his greatness. I said that perhaps we think that the solution of doubt is merely grounded in our own ability to defend the faith. But what we learn here is that unbelief is not remedied by argumentation. Yes, I am a presuppositional apologist and I uphold all those caveats. But unbelief is not resolved by thoughtfulness and rationality. Perhaps we hear that so often in our own families as we perhaps go home and visit family. We'll talk about Christmas in some capacity and there will be the most thoughtful, rational reasons on why to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we learn from this commentator is it is not thoughtful or rational. It is rather twisted and perverse. Our minds twisted and perverted against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the Pharisees thought in this passage. When they see the ministry of Jesus Christ as he heals people, as he enjoys drink and feast with people, how do the Pharisees end their statement? How do they conclude their thoughts? They conclude that the Son of Man is a drunkard. They include he is a glutton, that he is a friend of tax collectors. When John is not eating bread or drinking wine, doing the opposite, they accuse him of being a demon. Rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not rational. It is twisted. It is twisted. We live in a society that focuses on division. I referenced that just a few moments ago with our political alignments. We are divided according to race. We are divided according to sex. We are divided according to social statuses. Divided by political parties. As churches, we divide. Families divide. But Jesus is both a uniter and a divider. He unites those who are bound to them, him, and divides those who reject him. He unites all these weird types of people together. Divide, he unites race, sex, social status, perhaps political parties and churches. He is the uniter. 
we have often heard perhaps from those who have unbelief that Jesus was either savior, con man, or lunatic. He could not be multiple of those things. He's one of them. And so who do you say he is? Are you like the Pharisees in this passage who conclude that Jesus is the con man? The one who has conned these people in order to enjoy a decadent life? Perhaps you think he's a lunatic like John the Baptist was, according to these men. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is this Messiah? Is he the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Well, what we learn in this passage is Jesus is the one to come. He is the Messiah. He is the great Messiah that prepares the way for us to have salvation. And today, he unites us together. Though we all come from different locations, he unites us together as our one Lord. Who is Jesus Christ? Messiah. He is the greatest. And he is both the divider and uniter. For the Christian, even you can have doubts. I want you to know that. Do not be so burdened by your doubts that you think that the church is not the place for you. Bring your doubts forward to us. Be an inquirer like John was an inquirer, an open inquirer, wanting to know the truth of the Messiah to come. Doubt is not the unforgivable sin. Jesus covers that sin with his blood. And so come bearing freely with an open heart and mind to receive the gospel here today. It's not an unforgivable sin. And do not go home thinking it is. For the unbeliever, don't be so proud to believe that you have rationalized your unbelief. That you have answered all the questions, all the signs point against Jesus being the Messiah of all mankind. Maybe he's a great teacher, you say. Maybe he's a good moral model, you say. Do not be twisted and perverse, so much so to deceive yourself to saying, I am the most intellectual. I have sorted this all out. Turn from your sins and call upon the Messiah, for he is the one who saves you. Today, if you hear his voice out of Hebrews, do not harden your heart, but call upon him, and he will grasp a hold of you. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would send a Messiah to us. And even as we perhaps have our own doubts, we know, O Lord, that you provide us the answers we need, both in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but also the word that we read from today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.